Thanks for being here today. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor, and I feel like there's a big space between us today. I feel like there's a gap between us today. I'm going to try to close this gap today. I'm just kidding. I'm just really paranoid. If I get like excited and you guys just see me disappear, somebody help. Somebody get up and help, okay? Because there's a huge hole right here. It reminds me of a story. I was, uh, this might surprise you, but I went to a school of the arts and was a theater arts major at the School of the Arts, and we were blocking for a stage play one day, and I was in this play, and I had to back up, and we had a big, giant drop-off like this, and I was backing up and backing up, and I just went right off, all the way off the stage, dislocated my kneecap, got it put back together, but was on crutches for some time after that, and uh, a few weeks later was in, or a week later was in a barber shop, and at this barber shop was... Not just any football coach, but Somerville High School's football coach, John McKissick, who has an ESPN 30 for 30 with his name on it. The winningest football coach of all time and the most important man in Somerville, South Carolina, is sitting in the chair next to me and he says, how'd you hurt your knee, son, playing football? Am I going to see you on my team someday? I said, no, sir, I was, uh, I was blocking for a stage play. And that was it. The conversation was over. He had nothing... <laughs> He did not need to say anything else to me. Just got his flat top and got out of there. So, well, uh, my name is John Mark. I'm the lead pastor. It's an honor to have you with us here today. I got two quick things I want to share with you. First, uh, Mother's Day is in two weeks, and I really want to encourage you to bring your moms out for this because it's going to be a great day. We have a really special uh, teaching that day. Um, We're going to have a panel of women up here to speak on motherhood, and I really believe it is going to bless you. And so get excited, and please uh, bring your moms, bring your friends' moms, bring your mom's moms, bring everybody out for Mother's Day. And I want to let you guys know that the Gathering Church has an app, brand new app. We just launched it, and all you have to do, I learned about this this morning. If you open up the camera on your phone, and you point it at that picture, I've been wondering, I was like, why do we keep having these weird pictures on the screen a little yellow thing will pop up and you click on that and you can download the app right there. This app is the best way to stay connected with our church. Uh, You can get information there. You can do connect cards there. You can sign up for things there. You can sign up when we have events or when we have serve projects, baptisms, things like that. We'll all go through there. You can check your kids in through it. You can set up giving through it. All the things. You can watch past sermons and messages. It really is the best way to stay connected with us. It's an awesome app. Uh, So go check that out. Download it. Well, today we are continuing the series we began last week on Easter Sunday called Here for You. Here for You. We're looking at the life of King David and we're talking about how uh, the church, as the church, we're here for you. Last week we talked about David making a place for Mephibosheth at the king's table and we learned that because of Jesus, each of us has a seat at his table in the kingdom of God and in here in his church. You know, we, we really know that in this season, in this time especially, people are really asking, what is the church here for and what do we do and what, what matters to us? And first and foremost, the church is here to worship God. It's here for him. It's his. It's not about me, but it is about him. And, but secondly, we really do believe that the reason that God 
us, the church, was so that we would have one another. One of our core values here is family is our culture. Uh, we strongly believe that one of the great functions of the church is so that you don't have to go through life alone. And that's what we want to talk about today, really, especially, is today's sermon's titled Friends Like Family. And I want to look at the life of King David and talk about what it means to really have life-changing friendships and how we do that. I think it is something that is really hard for us in this day and age. Maybe it's something that's always been hard for us, absolutely essential to our lives. In fact, even in the garden, way back in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of time, in Genesis, Adam is walking in this space with the presence of God, the literal, physical presence of God, but even still, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. We were meant to be in relational community. We were created for it. Some of us got closer than ever with a few friends over the last couple years as we narrowed our circles, found our quarantine buddies. Who has quarantine buddies still? Maybe even got to know our neighbors for the first time. Maybe you hit a point in 2020 where you were so bored that you finally talked to that neighbor who lives three feet away from your house and made friends with them. Me and my neighbors, we created a fire pit. We weren't allowed to leave our house. Do you guys remember? This was a real thing that just happened. You weren't supposed to leave your property. And so I created a fire pit that was on both of our property lines so that we could hang out. They were on their property safely. We were on ours. But we got to know each other that way. Maybe you made some new friends and built some new community in, this, in that season. But for a lot of people, I think more than ever, we I became more isolated than ever. It became more and more and more difficult for us to know how to bring our walls down, to bring down barriers, to engage with people. Maybe even for you, you still have kind of like a uh, anxiety when people come around, when people you don't know get near you, when people put out the hand for a handshake, you're like, we don't do that anymore. Get that thing away from me. Put that back. Have, when was the last time you washed your hands? You know, we, we still have this anxiety in us when it comes to building relationships. And I I think it's handicapped us as a culture and as a people because we desperately need one another. But making friends is hard, and it's hard for a few different reasons. First, it's hard because to be friends, you have to be vulnerable, and vulnerability is awkward. Vulnerability is awkward. We have in our culture been conditioned to hide the truth. We've been conditioned to hide what we're really feeling, what's really going on, what's happening beneath the surface. Over generations, we've honed this to an art. When you're feeling down, you make up an excuse to hermit in your room and withdraw from people. One of our first responses when we're going through a difficult season is to push away everybody who could help get us out of it. When you're feeling up, you don't want to celebrate too loudly because you don't want to make anybody feel bad or, or maybe you don't know who to call or you're worried that if you call somebody else, they won't react the way you want them to and the pressure's too high and so we celebrate alone. And then there's the matter of actually getting to know people, getting to know people's story, giving people the opportunity to tell their story and having the opportunity to tell yours Maybe you have something in your story that is defining to who you are, that really makes who you are who you are. Maybe you have a history of depression, but right now, you've never been in a better place. You've never felt more joy for life. And how can somebody actually know you without knowing that thing about you? But when the heck do you bring that up? When's the right time to have that conversation? 
How do you talk about going through a lifetime defining loss without killing the vibe and making people feel weird? I mean, what do you do when, when you want to talk about the divorce that you went through and the custody battle and how all of it marked you and changed you as a person, but when's the right time when you're meeting someone new to have that conversation, to bring it up, to, to tell them about it? Maybe the last real friendship that you made was back in college because you would sit up all night having conversations in the dorm room and, and building vulnerability with one another, having the opportunity to share with one another when it's 1 a.m. and you should have been studying, but instead you're sitting around talking about your lives together. Maybe those are still 18, 15, 18, 20 years later, the only friends that you still really think know who you are. As an adult who has kids and bedtimes and is always rushing around from one place to the next, when is it the right time to open up to somebody? When do you have that opportunity? Another reason why friendship is hard is because our hearts aren't right. I think most of the time we want to blame the difficulty we have in forming real relationships either on other people or on our circumstances. Uh, across the street from my house, my neighbor has the most beautiful lawn you've ever seen in your entire life. I'm telling you, it is immaculate. Immaculate. The grass is the perfect shade of green. You've never seen such a nice shade of green. The bushes are perfectly arranged and well manicured. He, he trims them with fingernail clippers, I think. It's beautiful. The grass is very literally greener on the other side of my street. My grass is crabgrass and clovers and then a couple of little seeds of real grass mixed in between. Now, I have tried my best, okay? I'm out there, I've bought seed before and I've spread the seed. I don't know when you're supposed to do it or how to do it. I've just done it. I get out there. I've seen people with like the green thing that you push. I put it in like a satchel and spread it like I'm in a movie. I'm just like scattering grass all over the yard. I've put fertilizer down. I've tried that. I put weed killer down. I've got moles in my yard. I want to blame those daggum moles. They tear it all to pieces. There's just mole holes everywhere. And so I go outside and do the mole dance. I step on them, stomp around, move around, get all those mole hills flattened out. And there's all these reasons why my yard doesn't look as nice as my neighbor's yard. But I'll tell you that the real reason is because my neighbor does the work a lot more than I do. My neighbor is out there four or five days a week working on that yard. He's, he's, he's keeping the grass at the exact same height all the time. I'll never put in that much work. And until I'm willing to put in that much work, my grass is going to keep looking the way that it looks, and his is going to keep looking the way that it looks. Oftentimes, our priorities are out of order. Our hearts and the way that we see people, the way that we react internally when somebody has a victory. You have a natural wiring to how you react when someone around you has a victory. And sometimes, for some of us, it's not a great reaction. It's a, huh, well, you know, that'll fall apart soon. Or, huh, hmm, yeah, well, you know, I bet I know how they got that outcome. Uh, I, I don't know, I, I think... Uh, I think it's because they, you know, they're going through all that good time because they don't have as many kids as I do, and so they got a lot more money. You know, they're going through that great time because this happened to them or that happened. We have a little heart issue about people's lives and, and the victories they're having, and even the losses that we go through. They go through. We're not willing to do the work in our heart that other people are doing, and we find all kinds of other reasons to blame it on. 
our hearts aren't right. Our hearts aren't right. Oftentimes, friendship is hard because our hearts aren't right. Maybe we don't know how to prioritize, how to prioritize what's important in our lives. Maybe we don't know how to prioritize the work that our hearts need. Maybe we struggle to celebrate people because of a jealousy issue in our hearts. We struggle to mourn with people because we're hurt when nobody cared. When we went through something we just know was worse. We don't know how to prioritize others over ourselves. We want the benefits of community, people to be there for us and to help us and to celebrate with us, but we're not willing to do any of the work that it requires to get there. And then finally, it can be hard to make friends because it can be hard. I mean, that's just the bottom line. It's hard to build real relationships with people. It's hard. Life can be hard. Relationships are hard. People will let you down. Did you know that? 100% of the time, somebody's going to let you down. They'll lie to you. They'll take from you. They'll expect things from you. People's lives fall apart sometimes. And if you're their friend, then you've got to go through it with them. And that's hard. Making friends is hard. Having friends is hard. But I believe that it's worth it. It's worth the work. It's worth the effort. It's worth the joy and it's worth the pain because it's part of your design, part of how you were created. It's part of the life you were made to live. You have a need for it. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you have a need for people in your life. And one of the great functions of the church that Jesus started is to be here for you as you build lifelong friendships and real, lasting community. Jesus started the work of church of the church amongst his followers, his first disciples. They did everything together. They shared everything together. They went out to do ministry two by two. Jesus sent them out at a certain point during his time of doing ministry on earth. He sent his disciples out to go spread that message into many different villages. And he could have sent all 12 of them into 12 different places. But instead, he sent them two by two into six different villages. Why? Because we are better together. He knew the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one. Acts chapter 2 describes the church as a community of people who go through life together. That's what the church is supposed to be. And here we exist to help you build those relationships. But we know it's hard. We know it's hard. I want to look at one of the greatest friendships in history and in the Bible, and it's the friendship of King David and his friend Jonathan. And I want to learn from them what it looks like to build a real lasting friendship. The first thing that we learn from David and Jonathan is don't hold back. Vulnerability is awkward and we're always second guessing ourselves and not sure how people perceive us and it's, it's uncomfortable and I get that. But if you're going to find friends that are like family, you're going to have to really let your walls down at some point. And honestly, the sooner the better. Shortly after David is introduced to us in 1 Samuel, he gets sent on an errand uh, to deliver some supplies to his older brothers who are off fighting a war against the Philistines under King Saul. The war is not going very well. Israel is on one side of a valley and the Philistines are on the other side of the valley. And the Philistines have issued a challenge, a common challenge during wartime in that era. And that was for each side to pick a champion who would fight against one another in place of a big gory battle. 
And whoever won this, this fight, would be their side would be declared the winner of that battle. It was a cool tradition. Uh, Brad Pitt did it once in the movie Troy. And so this is a great way to save lives and prevent bloodshed. And it's good if you have a good champion. But Israel did not have anyone who could compete with Goliath. Goliath was the guy the Philistines had. He was this nine foot tall behemoth of a man. He was huge. He was mean. He got out there and taunted the Israelites every day. And they were all looking at this guy thinking, oh, I ain't going to fight him. Are you going to fight him? Heck no, I ain't going to fight him. King David shows up and he sees what's going. He's not the king at this point. He's a boy. And the boy David, who was a shepherd, who had been anointed king, but would a long way, was a long way off from walking into that kingship, he sees Goliath in the valley mocking the people of God and says, why isn't anybody knocking this chump out? Why isn't anybody doing anything about this? And so Goliath and David face off. David says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And they're all like, all right, man, good luck. But best of luck to you. Goodbye. And David goes down. They tried to give him the king's armor, and it was all like big and loose. And so he took that off. And he goes down there with a slingshot, knocks my guy out with a slingshot. Goliath falls down, and David grabs his giant sword and drags it over, and kapow, decapitates the guy. It gets violent real fast. So David has cut off the giant's head. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 57. We pick up the story. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. Saul was the king, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Gross. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. And David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, so you see what's going on here, right? You're following. We had the big battle scene. We had the awesome David and Goliath. He throws the slingshot. Goliath's down, cuts his head off, takes it off. He's holding the head, and he gives it to the king. It's super weird. And then the king is asking him about himself. And after that moment, or sometime during that moment, maybe while he's waiting to talk to the king, or right afterwards, the king's son is there. And the king's son's name is Jonathan. And Jonathan meets David for the first time. But they connected. And it says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. This was kind of a normal practice. That sounds extreme. But he accepted David into his court and gave him a job. David became the minstrel for the king. He was a musician and his music calmed Saul. He was beneficial in other ways. He was now a famous giant killer and so they used him in that way. And anyways, he's now living at the court And it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. So David kills Goliath and gets an audience with the king. And he's with the king for a while, meets Jonathan, and they connect right away to the point of making a covenant with one another. And this is an ancient tradition practiced from one soldier to another as a means of pledging allegiance, loyalty, and brotherhood. They took off, he took off his armor and presented it to David. The language used here seems to indicate that they connected immediately. Immediately, within a few days uh, from meeting to making a brotherhood covenant with one another. So what can we learn from this? 
the next time you're at a life group and you really have chemistry, you connect with somebody, immediately take off your clothes and give them to them. <laughs> and they will know that you want to be in relationship together. It's just the best way to get vulnerable. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's not applicable in this culture. But maybe it goes like this. You go to a life group and you meet some folks on first Wednesday uh, or at an event here or somewhere you meet some people. Maybe you're serving on the dream team together and you really just, you connect with one another. You think, I'm, I would love to get to know this person. I would love, making friends as an, an adult is hard. You're like, what do I do? Like, what's the steps here? My four-year-old gets it. She just walks up and says, hi, my name is Dagny. What's your name? And they're friends. That's it. It's done. But we complicate it as adults. You, you're serving with somebody on the dream team and you really like this person and you're just not really sure where to go beyond, hey man, did you see that Duke UNC game? It was, that was wild, huh? Well, see you next week. You know, and you're like, what do I do now? What I would propose is that rather than taking off your clothes and giving to them, maybe you just, you start asking for those digits. You, you start getting people, maybe you go to a life group and there's somebody that you really connect well with there and you've been hanging out, there's chemistry, you're bonding. Hey man, I would love to get your number so I can text you. I would love to have you and your family over for dinner sometime. We just love to get to know you guys more. Hey, we're going to the tourist game on Friday and we would love to have you and your family come join us for that start small Make some plans. And then, uh, as that goes on, and you think these are good folks and we want to know them more, instead of just filing them on your calendar as someone you get together with every couple of months, what if you decided to get together again and share your stories with one another? What if you start to get vulnerable with these people? What if you make an environment for that? What if, instead of literally taking off your armor, you said, these are some folks that I'm willing to remove my armor in front of? Why don't you guys come over one night? Let's, let's get sitters and go out one night and sit around. And I'd just love to share about my life with you. Tell you who I am. I'd love to hear who you are. I'd love to know more about what makes you you. And start asking deeper questions. Get vulnerable. I believe that the first step to forming a lasting friendship with somebody is letting your walls down. You can't know somebody until you've been vulnerable with that person. Until they've seen you vulnerable. You've seen them vulnerable. My advice is to stop making excuses, putting it off, wondering if, if you'll ever really connect with this person, and to be more direct. If you want to have real friendships, lasting relationships, you have got to get vulnerable with people. People need to know who you really are. Maybe you are two different people, somebody at home and somebody in front of others. They need to know who the real you is if they're ever going to be your real friend. Proverbs says that in the same way that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. In other words, when you let people actually come into your life, when you let them know who you are, when you let those walls down and reveal your true self, you give them the opportunity to make you better and make your life more full in the process. Get vulnerable. Get vulnerable. Don't put it off. Don't wait too long. Don't wait for the perfect moment. Make it weird if you need to make it weird. Get vulnerable with people. Number two, celebrate their good days and mourn their bad days. Seems obvious if you want to make a good friend and build and sustain a lasting friendship. Celebrate their good days and mourn their bad days. Seems like a clear thing and yet we struggle to do it. We're not sure what to say, what's right to say. Maybe we should give them space. 
They probably need space right now. I'll, I'll reach out in a couple weeks once all their family and people that are really important to them have. I should give them space. May, maybe they want to celebrate with somebody. Maybe I'm not the right person to text them or to, to invite them out for a celebration dinner because they probably have people more important than me. Have you ever said these things in your head? Has, has this thought ever crossed your mind? You don't know what to do when somebody's mourning. You don't know what to do when somebody's celebrating, so you keep distant. If you keep distant on these big, important days in somebody's life, you will never have close friends. You'll never be that person who has access on those important days if you don't just take access sometimes. As people, I think we have a tendency to see the world through a very narrow lens. I want to talk about David and Saul for a moment. Saul loves David right when he meets him. He thinks this guy is great. He saved us from the Philistine. Uh, he's a great warrior. He's brave. He's full of faith. He's a great musician. Uh, Saul knew that there was something special about David. He liked having him around. And David would play music for Saul that would calm him down, help him rest. Saul gave David responsibility and opportunities in his kingdom. Eventually, beyond just playing music, Saul gave him command over some of his armies. And it says in verse 5 that whatever mission Saul sent David on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. He was friends with the king. He was favored by the king. And things are good with the king. But then, verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye. but had the greatest victory that he had ever had. This amazing moment of celebration. And the whole country is celebrating with him. Nobody was willing to step up and fight this giant, but David did it. What a moment for him. And Saul is celebrating with him and he's excited for him until, until he realizes all the attention is on David instead of himself. And at that moment, something in his heart changes towards David forever. He would never think of David again in the same way. It says, verse, next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So we go from Saul saying, I love this guy. I want him in my court. You're coming to live with me at the palace. You're gonna eat at my table. You are one of my people. I'm gonna give you command over my armies. I'm blessing you because you are good, dude. I like this guy, David. Your victories are my victories. To, at the end of this passage, Saul is literally throwing spears at him that David is having to elude. What happened? Where's the change? It was jealousy. David had been given the life that Saul wanted and Saul hated him for it. And I wonder if you can relate to Saul. 
I wonder if you've ever had a friend and it just felt like everything went right for them all the time. Like they just kept living your dream, getting what you want, having the stars aligned for them. And so over time, you begin to resent them. Maybe you celebrate them to their face, but behind their back, it's a different story. In your heart, it's a different story. That was Saul's reaction. But Jonathan knew that David was meant to take his place as the heir to the throne. Do you understand that Jonathan was next in line to be king? But he became aware at some point during this time that David had been anointed to be king. And he was okay with it. He still loved him like a brother. He still celebrated with him. See, I believe it's possible to care about people's victories instead of living in competition with them. Jonathan proves that. And if you want to build a real relationship, this is some of the work that has to happen in your heart. In chapter 20, he does everything that he can, Jonathan does everything that he can to help David figure out if Saul is going to kill him again. He's David's man on the inside. David is in hiding, and he's trying to figure it out. He's still kind of in the palace, kind of not. And Jonathan wants to know if Saul is really, he doesn't want to believe that his dad is actually trying to kill David. So he goes to figure it out. And they make a plan for David to miss an important feast and for Jonathan to see how the king reacts. And Saul reacted with rage because he had planned to kill David at the feast. And when Jonathan called Saul out on it, he said this, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Saul makes it clear, Jonathan is the one with the most to lose by David's ascension to the throne. But Jonathan is a true friend, a friend like family to David. He's not concerned about what he's going to lose. He's concerned about his friend. He tells David everything that happened, and they mourn together. There was a servant boy there, and it said, after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. You need a friend who will celebrate with you, and you need a friend who will mourn with you, who will just show up. Because on your worst days, you don't need to be alone. I've seen it before. People go to church for years and never build a single real relationship. All we can do is give you the resources and the tools that you need to make lasting friendships. I can't make friends for you. And I've seen it. People go to church for years and they never make a real relationship and then they face a real tragedy. And nobody shows up. No hot meals come to the house. Nobody sits to be with them. They reach out to us and our staff does everything we can to meet those needs, but it's not enough. Don't wait until your worst day to learn how much you need some real friends in your life. I've seen it the other way. When somebody goes through a loss and their community steps up and medical bills get paid and meals show up for months and there's always someone there to listen, to cry with you, to sit there, Sometimes the best thing you can do is just show up and sit there. When you have a friend in need, don't be thinking there's somebody else that can show up for them. Just show up. Show up. You'll either be invited in or they'll appreciate the gesture. They're not going to be mad that you came. 
It's not hard to be there to celebrate people and mourn with them. When life is good, just be happy for them. Celebrate. Bring them a little something, you know? Bring them a bucket of chicken to tell them, hey, I was thinking about you today. Nothing says love like chicken. When it's bad, don't worry about saying or doing the right thing. Just show up. Bring them a bucket of chicken to say, I'm so sorry that you're going through this, but nothing helps more than chicken. You just got to show up, and that's enough. If you want to have real friends, you got to start showing up for people. You can't expect people to show up for you if you're not showing up for them. Celebrate people's wins, mourn their losses, and then finally, help each other find strength. Help each other find strength. After Jonathan warns David and they mourn together, David goes on the run. He's on the lamb. He's now a wanted man. The king wants him dead. And he's going around and living in different caves, from cave to cave to cave. He's building kind of an army that's, that's supporting him, helping him, protecting him. And when Saul finds out what cave he is in, where David is hiding, Jonathan sends a warning and David moves to another cave. And that just goes on for a long time. And David became very tired of it. He, he just, he was tired. He was tired of living in caves. He had been at the palace. And before the palace, he had a pretty good life as a shepherd. He doesn't want to live this way. He's thinking about abandoning the nation of Judah and going to join the Philistines as a hired mercenary. He's a great warrior and he knows they'll give him the job because he's the biggest thorn in their side. They want to hire that guy. He would be able to live somewhere nice, not in a cave. He figured, hey, I'm already Saul's enemy. Why not just give in? David was ready to give up. And Jonathan met him exactly right there in that place. Verse 16, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, this is chapter 23. Saul's son rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. And Saul, my father, also knows this. He gave him a pep talk. He gave him a moment of encouragement Jonathan laid his dreams aside to say, David, you're the one that God wants to be the king. It's you. And you're going to be king over Israel. You don't go fight for the Philistines. You don't give up. You don't quit just because you're in a cave. Just because you're in a place you don't want to be, it doesn't mean you throw in the towel, David, because I'm right here. And I'm going to be right here when there's good days. And I'm going to be right here when there's bad days. And everybody knows it because I'm your guy. I'm going to be there. In his weakest moment, Jonathan shows up to strengthen him and lift him up. That's what friends like family do. They show up for you when you really need it, when you're ready to quit, when it feels too hard to go on, when you don't know what's coming next. You need people in your life. If you don't have them, you will quit. If Jonathan didn't show up in that cave, what happens to the rest of the future of humanity? 
David would ascend to the throne and become king. He was the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. And he won all these victories and these battles. He drove back the enemies of God. And he got the plans ready and laid the work down so that there would be a temple in Jerusalem where the presence of God could come. He got the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back into the city of God to singing and dancing. And his son Solomon would go on to build the temple of God. And their line would continue on and on and on. Until Jesus, who was a descendant of David, would come into the earth and change all of humanity. And God would have found another way. He would have. But the story almost changed because David was ready to quit. But he had somebody to step in and stop him. Do you? Do you have someone who will strengthen you? who will show up in your time of need when your life is about to go in the wrong direction forever, who's going to come and say, wait, 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 wait. You can do this. I know you can. I will be right next to you the entire time. Let me walk it with you. Proverbs 27.10 says, Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. And don't go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Because better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. In other words, you can't just rely on your family to be the only people in your life who are there for you. You need a community. You need to build a network of friends. You need people to mourn with, people to celebrate with people to be vulnerable with, to take off your armor and lay it at their feet. You need people who know you as well or better than you know yourself. You need people to strengthen you in your day of calamity. You need it. And the church is here to help you build it. It's one of our greatest functions. We can't make friends for you. You have to do these things. You have to take initiative. We believe one of our core values is that initiative is our obligation. We take the initiative to start to get vulnerable with somebody, to, to make those plans, to meet people. But we give you a framework to live life together in. Right here in this space, you can meet people that are gonna link arms with you. They're gonna go through it with you. Some of my best friends are right here in this room. I met them here at this church, through this place. It's hard to make friends when you're the pastor because you're the pastor. <laughs> but I've got real friends in this room. And that is my prayer for each and every one of you is that you would have real, lasting, lifelong, life-changing friendships right here in this room. It would change everything for you. And we're here to help you do it. Now, because of David's friendship with Jonathan, that was one of the factors that led to him looking for Mephibosheth. He had made a covenant with Jonathan and tragically Jonathan died before David ascended to be king. And so as king, he went and he found the son of Jonathan and he brought him into his household because of his love for his father. He gave him a seat at the table. He welcomed him into his life. And something similar has been done for you. See, Jesus has called you his friend. Jesus has given his life for you. Jesus has gone out of his way to have a relationship with you. And because of Jesus' love for you and God's love for Jesus, God has given you a seat at his table. He's prepared a place for you because Jesus has gone forward on your behalf. 
And if you're ready to enter into that relationship and to have a relationship with God that would change everything for you, you don't have to go through life alone anymore. You can have the presence of God right there in your heart and the community of God around you every day. And if you want to enter into that relationship, all you have to do is just accept the gift that's already been offered. Every head bowed, every eye closed. All you have to do is just accept it. And it starts with a prayer. It goes like this. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for everything I've done that separated me from you. For trying to do it on my own. I want to be in relationship with you. I believe in you. Everything that I am is yours. From this day forward, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen.